but it, it, I find it interesting, and I, I don't truly understand why exactly uh, that there's this kind of appetite for city planning in particular and yeah. the logistics of life in sort of more general as a game that like surely that's not supposed to be fun but no the people are care about this my speculation is because where they live is is shit and not improving and getting worse yeah. <laughs> yeah. like to see to see that done but i i maybe maybe there's more to it i don't know Okay, so welcome everyone. This is uh, Street Sweeper. I am Ricardo. And I'm Will. And uh, today uh, we formally apologize to the Architectural Review for... Yeah, they've got a reprieve on their labor issue. Yes. We're not going to cover it this month. We promised we, the next episode would be on their issue on labor in architecture. And uh, I guess we were too busy this month. Organ- doing labor organizing that we didn't have time to read about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's more or less what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yes, you. there will be another month until we actually go through the issue because we want to give it proper justice. Absolutely. Right? For sure. Um, yeah, so today instead, we'll, we, we have the also-promised interview episode with our friend Lucci. That's right. Uh, he asked a question in our Patreon. Yes, he is a friend and patron. Uh, say hi, Lucci. Hello, everyone. <laughs> everyone, this is Lucci. <laughs> Lucci is a good friend of ours. Uh, like in, in Portugal, we say, like, always in the Portuguese Communist Party, we always say, like, Comrades and friends. Okay. Uh, and Luchi is both. Um, He's a friend in the sense of comrade and friend. And also in the sense of friend and also and also a comrade in the sense of comrade. Yeah. yeah. Um, the words, right? Yes. And uh, yeah, and uh, Luchi works in video games. We talked, we told this before, like, right? Like we explained this. When we were talking about this potential episode, uh, he's yeah, a, I listened he, about it on a podcast. Ah, uh, there you go. You learned about <laughs> you being a, a video game developer and also the secretary of the game workers. It's not the game workers union, right? It's like the game workers branch of the IWGB union. Yes, so IWGB is uh, like a, a. It used to be called Pop Up Unions, which is maybe a bit derogatory, but a non TUC union. Uh, and it is kind of cross-discipline or cross-sector. So there's right. like private hire drivers and cleaners in universities and delivery drivers and also game workers. So each of these are branches, and uh, I'm secretary of the the game workers branch. Right, right, right. And I, IWGB is Independent Workers of Great Britain? Yes. Yeah, so unionizing game workers is a fairly recent phenomenon. 
kind guess, of is. I guess like unionizing architects is. And uh, like for us, I think there's kind of something interesting to talk about there because like it, it feels like the dem- demographics of unionization in both fields would be more or less similar. Relatively young workers who are kind of coming like with, with higher education, uh, who are coming to be confronted with the reality of being a worker as a kind of a collective consciousness issue that is growing quickly, who have no previous experience much as a field as being in being unionized. And like even we imagine that even like the employers, the bosses have many of the same problems as like being like often former former entrepreneurs 30 years ago who were like passionate in their field and innovating things and blah 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 and, and looking at their employees as having to be what they were when they were young and were making it as self-employed uh, people in a in a developing field like architecture as well yeah, even though it's, it's a it's a professional or semi-professional field right so the the bosses are often professionals so there's an, an illusion maybe of equality and identity between employers and employees that you're both professionals or at least between senior managers and employees yeah yeah, so I mean, you're right that there's this kind of um, relatively recent, compared to other industries, uh, past of of nothing being there, and then a few people cobbling things together, being like the petty bourgeois or whatever that used to they had some spare money, and then that turned into what is now a, a very legitimate and massive industry. Right, and some of those people are still around, and a lot of them don't really have an interest in much beyond the actual games. Uh, so the, the sort of managing of a company is not really what they want to focus on. It, it kind of varies. But obviously, as something grows, that changes. And then there's the purely sort of MBA types that are just care about management, managing a company. And that's who management tends to become. So there's right. this weird tension between the idea that, oh, we're all in this together. It's all like a small thing. It's a kind of startup being adjacent to other tech industries kind of reinforces that. But at the same time, oh, surely you, you're you doing what you love. This is your passion. Yeah, yeah, You don't have to do this. You could be doing something else. You choose to do this. Thus, you will work the whatever 60 to 80 hours a week for months that yeah. we are not going to pay extra for. Yeah. That vocational ideology yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like obviously architecture is much older than video games. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the little, there's been the there's been architects for longer than there's been video game developers, but the the structure of the profession, the current structure of the profession in architecture, is actually not much older than video games in the sense of like the privatization of the field post welfare state, the development of like neoliberal labor relations, the end of public sector employment. Blah blah blah. That radically reconfigured how labor works in architecture is something that starts emerging in the seventies, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the the early field of professional architecture, which yeah, is very much obviously. like petit bourgeois 
independent mm-hmm. professional architects with their mm-hmm. own private firms. But the number of architects, number of architects per capita is, small. is tiny at the time. Yeah, the growth of large firms, both public and private, really picks up in the post-war period. But large private firms are picking up at the same time and alongside public public firms in like the 60s. Right. Particular. Uh, and then it all goes private after the 70s, more or less, with variation place right. to place, but as a general trend. I was thinking one of the other parallels probably is this, like, the um, working to a project deadline uh, with rush periods and, like, the shirt they call the charrette in architecture. Right. Like it's called crunch periods. The crunch, crunch, yeah. Exactly. And the project as, I mean, we've talked a lot about project ideology in architecture, but the idea of like the creative project and this kind of like labor crunch associated with it. Uh, sure. Yeah. The, uh, the clear contradiction between the ideological notion that the project belongs to you as well as a worker in the office, but the profits from it don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the power in how you manage the production of that creative project is also not as yours as much as it is. The the, the capitalist owner, the architect who owns the firm, or the the uh, senior manager slash uh, MBA executive that is representing the monopoly distributor or company in the video game industry. So there's kind of a, a very strong dissociation between the uh, that is be, being increasingly felt, and it's probably why u- unionization is really becoming a, a, a serious thing being discussed and done. In both yeah, it, it's it's different to what it used to be for sure. It used to be that there wasn't really a studio bigger than a few hundred, a game studio. Right. Uh, that used to be large. Uh, it used to be that it was fairly common for a lot of the people working on a studio to be able to start their own or go up some kind of ladder to get closer to, I mean, a better salary or even revenue sharing that that's not entirely alien, but that obviously changed. Like if, if there's profits, the structure will change. And now there's the majority of workers end up in these huge studios, multinationals, with like thousands plus people per project across different time zones with not even local control over the project. It's like a global thing for that company. This project is doing that. And still this idea that, so the, the, like the other, the, the polar opposite is like going indie. You've gone independent, you've made some money now you're quitting your job and making your own game in your spare time and then trying to sell it Uh, and this kind of that's used basically as marketing for working harder Uh, because oh surely everyone can do that if they whatever If, if if this person did it if this indie game that's popular made it then surely you can um but you mean that there's like a hundred other indie games that failed exactly the the vast majority fail if you're in the industry, you know lots of people who tried and failed. Uh, so it's it's kind of this weird dissonance where we're all aware that it's unlikely, but we'll also kind of 
lying to ourselves that it's it's a possibility. And the fights end up being over like, do I even get credit on the game I made? Is my name showing up in the credits, even right, though right. I worked on it for months? And that's something that doesn't even cross into architecture at all. Like the idea that there's like a credits list, like at the end of a game or a movie. Like mm. this is whatever the name of everyone who worked there and what specifically they did. In <laughs> architecture, it's completely out of the realm of yeah. imagination. <laughs> yeah. It would be nice if there was a plaque that said, oh, here's here's who who measured <laughs> yeah. the who measured the structural uh like where Yeah, and it wouldn't be just the architects, it will be everyone who works in a building like yeah. from from the boss of the architecture firm to the bricklayer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a that would be cool. One meter by half a meter plaque, which is the big like grid of <laughs> occupations. Yeah, credits in buildings by law should be mandated. That, that's nice. <laughs> but yeah, this is. I mean, this has always been a thing in the in games. This kind of tension. But obviously, like everything, the, 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 these contradictions are intensified now. Um, yeah. the, there's, there's a lot of investment and also an expectation of profits increasing, which they don't uh, necessarily. So there's always an intensification of the exploitation to some degree or another. And eventually people start to care about that. Um, there's been like unionized studios for a while now, but mostly in countries where everyone is normally in a union. So like the, the Swedish game studios tend to be unionized because it would be weird not to have a unionized workplace. Sometimes right. it's legal requirement or whatever. Um, but it's only really become a wider idea that this was even possible in the past, I don't know, five years or so. Right. Hmm. Which is more or less the time frame in which, for architecture the, too, in, yeah. in architecture, like the, the idea of unionization really became a, a a real force, right? Being widely discussed and practiced, or at least attempting to be practiced. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like there is definitely a sort of trend in this, like the, a sort of a at the same time exploitation is increased by about as much as it will bear in a lot of fields because why why not because that's yeah. how that's how it works so it's 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 interesting i guess not that surprising that it would be a similar timeline yeah i think it's also a generational thing there's a, a kind of the people our age and below are much of the thrust behind unionization. Yes. Uh, there, there is, like what you mentioned earlier, people not even knowing what it is, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, but there's also this sort of bimodal age distribution where people slightly older than us, like what might be called Gen X, mm. would probably know what unions are and be against them as yeah. overall right. as, a, as a group. Yeah. Gen and X, worst even, generation. and people older still would be maybe the opposite maybe know what unions are but be slightly for maybe even just out of nostalgia for their youth when unions were common more common right and they were younger right Uh, and then there's people roughly our age whatever millennials zoomers 
terrible names for these things, but it is what it is, uh, <laughs> who don't know about any of this. Like we've heard of unions, maybe, uh, depending on your background and where you're from or whatever. But for the most part, we don't know what they are and what they do, uh, which is a problem in terms of organizing people. Um, but also means there's not so much of the anti-union propaganda that people have absorbed. People just don't. It's like a blank slate for the most part. Right. So it's it's kind of... And, and in the workplaces, you're right, that the management generally doesn't know what to do with it, except in a few cases. Like if it's a really, uh, if it's a really big company, especially if it's a US-based company that owns studios elsewhere, and if it's been like... A, the investment arm of a hedge fund or whatever, which some of these, that's kind of how they function. Yeah. Like Activision nominally makes games, but that's not really mm. their, their structure in society exactly. Um, and, and these companies, or a lot of them, like EA or whatever, they tend to be a bit more, when they do notice unions, they tend to be a bit more aggressive about it. Right. Is there uh, any examples of employers that go like, oh, yeah, union, that's fine? Sort of. It's very rare. Yeah. Mostly it's complete indifference. Right. The second most common reaction is slight aggression. Mm -hmm. Nothing as bad as what most industries get for the most part mostly because it's, there's not that many people unionizing in the first place. But there, there have been people fired for it. Um, it's sometimes you get management that is sympathetic to the idea, but because uh, saturation is so low, because so few people in every workplace are in the union, there's not that much even management could do about it, even if they, like, if they, even if they were happy to recognize the union. There's rarely enough people. Right. Usually, there's rarely enough people to to actually do something about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the big differences here is that the game sector is significantly more monopolized than the architecture sector. Architecture, mm -hmm. interestingly, is still mostly made of smaller offices and like the the hundred the a few hundred workers office is a big office right. it's kind of large most of the work though is done by large offices most of the work is done by large offices but large offices are not yet they're not like a thousand or so uh workers distributed across the world necessarily like most offices like a large office like how many people does I don't know, uh, Norman Foster have? It's a few hundred, right? Yeah. I think it's a few hundred. Offices like SOM would be bigger. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, that's a, something that'd be good research to do, to just figure <laughs> out like what is the degree of monopolization in architecture. Right, sure. right. I know that the proportion of work done by large offices has grown yeah. over the last 50 years consistently. Mm -hmm. There is still a lot, like the total number of offices, the majority of them are quite small, but even the people working in small offices are often working on the side in their small office and actually do most of their work in a larger office as an employee. Right. So most of the architectural work being done is being done by 
large offices, but they're not large the way EA is large. Sure. Yeah, like EA has like 10,000 people worldwide. Right, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's not like this like massive monopoly umbrella companies that own several different studios. Well, I think sure. firms like SOM are kind of like that, but they have different studios in different cities around the world. Right. They're coordinating like a, a multinational right. uh, architecture. But they're not, they don't function as a publisher in the way that big publishers in the video games like own development studios, which themselves have their own brand. I wouldn't be surprised if that didn't also exist. There's all kinds of complex subcontracting and different sub-design studios in architecture. I was reading a, a short text from Peggy Deemer mm. on related to entrepreneurialism in architecture. And she's saying that there's a lot of design work that's now done by small or relatively small studios subcontracted to do different design aspects of a project which could have to do with different technologies. It could be like ceramics or it could be like some more techie mm. aspects. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if these studios were themselves connected institutionally to larger studios of different kinds. Yeah, that sort of thing Might actually does happen in games. Think. Yeah, that absolutely happens in games. So you have relatively smaller studios or studios who used to make their own stuff and publish it with a publisher but no longer can afford to. So there's, for a lot of studios, there's this tension between work for hire and your own IP as intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So you can either, I don't know, work for EA or Microsoft, be contracted to work on one of their projects, which brings the benefit of somewhat stable income uh, but you're kind of tied to them. They decide everything. Uh, they are often massive pricks about inconsequential things. Um, all, all the things that come with like not owning the thing you work on, even as a company. And the other end of it is you come up with your own intellectual property, your own game world, your own stories, your own everything. And then you try to, that as you own, either publish it yourself or go to a publisher with it but then you keep much more of the profits from that as a company, as a studio. And there's a lot of them that are trying to become small independent studios and on the way are working for hire for some, some bigger right. thing. To fund and, a, a, a more uh, like capital incentive in terms of, capital, yeah. capital intensive in terms of immediate investment. Yeah, yeah exactly. uh, project because it's it's more hope, it's more really, overhead. Yeah, it's really expensive to make things to, to make games. Like you would think, oh, like everyone has a computer, right? Uh, and sure, if you're making something small, like a little two D game or whatever, yeah, sure, one or a handful of people can make a thing. But if you want to compete with like the really massive games, like God of War or like even something like battle, the bigger like Battlefield, uh, like that's kind of inconceivable almost. But if you want to get at least kind of close, you need a lot of money. You need like dozens and dozens of artists and tech artists and designers. Yeah, the, the amount of labor hours is 
is really high. Yeah. And this is before you even get to the software engineering. Right. Like people think of it as, oh, programmers make the games, right? No, sure, we're a part of it. But, and, and sure, the end product is uh, software and it is an engineered piece of software. But there's a lot of art that goes into it in the traditional sense of like people that make paintings for environments. Right. Uh, for like concept art is a big thing at the very beginning. Obviously, all the 3D models, there's animators, there's all, there's all sorts of disciplines. Right. Um, which is kind of unusual in the tech industry overall. Yeah, that's a. Uh, that it, it's definitely something that exists to a, to a small extent in architecture, but not to the same extent as in. Like what you call video game development or software development, like you talk, you're talking about the whole package from beginning yeah. of the productive process until the product is finalized and ready to distribute. Yeah, exactly. Starting with people and capital, how do you get a game yeah. that someone could buy and play? When you're talking about architecture, you're really talking about just one tiny part of the productive process of building. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, you, what you're describing is much more, it's much closer to what happens in a real estate company that also has an integrated architectural mm-hmm. office, which does ha- exist. Yeah, or what, used, firms, or what firms. used to happen in the public sector when uh, like the welfare state had a public construction industry where architects were part of the team as well. Yeah, which to get, today would be called vertical integration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just looked this up. Apparently, mm-hmm. Foster Partners has 452 employees. Okay. Uh, and it's ranked number 27 in the world. Okay. The largest architecture firm in the wor- world is Gensler, which is an American firm, with about 20, 2,800 employees. Okay. okay. So actually, it's not that dissimilar. And they began in the 60s as a corporate interiors <laughs> firm, which now does like larger like does corporate buildings, office buildings. They they made everything in the Mad Men series. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. There's, there's the larger construction sector corporate structure yeah. with larger firms and more yeah. complex. Yeah, there's not so much of a separation for games. Like, there's not probably the closest equivalent might be game design. You might think of that as the equivalent of architecture, Um, as in design, as in figuring out what kind of behavior do we want to allow players so that they have a user experience that is what you want to the end result to be. Like, you want them to have fun, you want them to weep, or whatever. Um, But there, there is a. But there, there is a kind of, if I understand correctly, a certain distinction between the guy who envisions the thing and the guy who has technical knowledge on how to make the vision practically yes. feasible. Whereas in architecture, there's a, at least in a mythological sense, <laughs> there's supposed to be a certain like mix between the two. Like the architect has the vision, but also has a lot of technical. He's like a generalist of all the specialists. Specialties and mythically speaking, it it would be a he, obviously. Yes, of course. So yeah, mythological architect, of course, male. Um, And yeah, the the whole idea is 
you have a vision for the whole thing, but you also have the technical skills. As a, you don't know as much about structures as a structural engineer. You don't know as much about whatever specialty as any specialist in the area that's going to do the specialist project for that part of construction. But you have a general basic technical knowledge that allows you to have an integrated vision for how everything works together. Sure. Um, that kind of used to be the case more than it is now in the games industry. Obviously, when it was really young, there would be very very small teams. So by necessity, people would be somewhat closer to generalists. Often, there wouldn't even be a design role. It would be the programmer happens to do designing or the artist, right. if it's right. a more visual thing. Um, nowadays, it kind of varies. There's different kinds of designers. And there's this kind of tension between design and engineering. They tend to want everything. And that tends to have a cost, which is sometimes hard to explain because they don't have enough detailed knowledge of, of the engineering side. So they will want things that are impossible, which I'm sure happens in architecture too. Like yeah, the, that's, to... that's a typical story between specifically architects and engineers. The, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, and the, there's a similar, between, yeah, a similar thing between designers and engineers within games. So, And the, the closest thing to that, like a single generous role maybe is like a creative director or is executive producer or something like that. Hmm. It would be someone that might arbiter decisions, but usually the teams are so large, like you're not going to have the one designer. You're going to have a handful of designers at least, and you're going to have dozens and dozens or hundreds of engineers. So it, it, it ends up being a lot more varied in terms of what exactly, which skills exactly each, each person you might interact with has. The, um, I, I'm talking about this as a mythology because there's a kind of a, an understanding we have. I, I think it's more or less generalized that uh, the architectural field is becoming more like the game designer and the less like this notion of the architect that also has a significant amount of knowledge mm. of programming or what would be the equivalent. Sure. The technical side. Yeah. Yeah. Where are the are the architect is becoming more more and more of like a visual visionary? Hmm. Yeah, apparently this concern goes back to uh, the eighties when there was a boom in real estate and there was a boom in the popularity of architecture. So magazines, popular magazines like non-architectural magazines, newspapers, journals were covering architecture. And like a series of projects, particularly in like America, like the AT&T building, postmodern build, postmodern Philip Johnson skyscraper in New York, or these like uh, Portman hotels, right? Like the one that uh, Jameson talks about in the as an example of postmodernism and late capitalism. Uh, these projects had like a big public reception, but the reception was focused on facades and interiors. And there was concern in like architectural circles that... Uh, the specifically architectural dimension of yeah, the architecture. Yeah, was being reduced basically to the surfaces. Right. Yeah, yeah, like architects weren't doing anything but facades and interiors anymore. Interiors and, hmm. perceived as like the atmosphere of an interior space, not sure, as right. like the organization of program and all the kind right. of complicated exactly. technical stuff. Yeah, like the interior design aspect of the interior. Yeah. Not the programming, yeah. 
And, and that's definitely the general perception of architecture. Yeah. So there's all the jokes like, oh, you, you've done an architecture to a city if, if it's there's something weird or yeah. Yeah. unwieldy or something. Yeah. 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 And and that 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 concern exists within the architectural discipline. Like it's from the beginning. Like it's, it's when architects start talking about like the society of the spectacle, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and well, they, like, they start talking kind of... about that, anticipating getting those jobs. Exactly. <laughs> they, exactly. Yeah, they start talking about that problem when they're not yet doing the spectacle. Uh, right. They're learning how to do the spectacle. Like, yes. Yeah, like they know that capitalism through advertising and mass media is doing the spectacle. It's just that creative intellectuals like themselves aren't doing the spectacle yet. It's right. Like ad people. Uh, and then by the time the 80s, now the architects are right. like doing the There's spectacle. like a specific, <laughs> yeah, a specific like higher education, uh, sophisticated PMC sector does not yet have access. Yeah, to, to like, kind of like ideal defining production. the spectacle yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want part of the pie of the spectacle, and we're not getting it. Yeah, and, and then the old school and that's like, easy to understand from a Marxist perspective, right? The old like, school corporate architects are 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 getting worried that they're not like doing like the students aren't being taught how to be like good professional service architects anymore. Like right. they can't be hired by a client and expected to manage an entire project because all right. they know is how to do like the like constructive vibe in an interior or like a mm. striking postmodern facade which yeah. continues after postmodernism Absolutely. goes out of fashion in the into the contemporary neo-avant-garde yeah approach yeah which is why we would just say it's still postmodern yeah exactly yeah. It's, that like it's 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 I, again, from a Marxist perspective, it's easy to understand. We've mentioned it several times. The, the necessity to generate surplus value in the real estate industry, which becomes a key part of the economy as a central pillar of the credit system, of, as yeah. financialization of capitalism, of Western capitalism happens, uh, requires like the generation of sources of surplus value in real estate that have very little to do with use value. Like yeah. people already have a house, but you need to keep generating surplus value in the housing sector. How do you do that with architecture? Yeah. So architecture isn't really as, as distinct from building. As this and as distinct from housing. Producing housing for people. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's producing a second housing for people. More housing that's not necessarily for people even. Mm -hmm. uh, which is increasingly the case. Yeah. Hence all the marking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, games is definitely a lot more forced to deal with reality, even though it seems odd. Like it should be back. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? The video games are closer to the economic reality of the world than architecture. That's brutal. <laughs> it's it's truly it's truly bizarre, but that that is what it is. Like studios live and die by making things that people want to play. That's but publishers don't. This is I I actually think you're being too lenient on your own field because. Like, it seems like it's very similar. You have stockholders that make money out of selling or valuing their stocks for the company, the publisher, yeah. whatever. Sure. And therefore, they need short-term, like, promises of short-term large returns and ever-increasing uh, returns on an ever-shortening time yeah, span. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So they don't necessarily 
they're not necessarily focused. The, the companies switch pro from being focused on pr- producing a product that people want to buy to producing a product that will increase the quarterly value of the stock uh, portfolio uh, the most in the next quarterly report. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, which like is what happens in real estate. Yeah, yeah. And it, like, it's obviously famously it's happening with Tesla. Which right. It's... it's uh, that is a particularly hilarious and ridiculous example of it, where they produce far less value than, like, not even close to what their stock price yeah, yeah. keeps growing for, merely out of basically hype. Uh, and this absolutely happens in games. Like, if you've paid attention to any of the, like, in fact, it's really funny to look at historical marketing of games, because there's all sorts of completely batshit ideas. Uh, like VR in the 80s, which couldn't possibly have worked. Like the latency requirements are barely close to <laughs> realistic today, let alone then. Or like all sorts of weird peripherals and like these sort of bizarre ideas of what people might want to do. And it's pretty pretty obvious that nobody actually did like a user survey or nobody tried to put people using to use these things and see. No, it was selling the concept. Fun. Exactly, and and some of them actually and, and, make it into real. And there were good things out about it. I I learned about um, what's her name, uh, Angelina Jolie, because of VR, the VR hype, <laughs> right? It's like the 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 VR movie was teenage sure. Angelina Jolie punk uh, hackers. Th- hackers, yeah, hackers, yeah. right. <laughs> One more man. Yeah, the, the, there's absolutely a lot of hype. Uh, and I'm sure, I mean, this happens in every industry, obviously. I don't think games is necessarily unique, though, um, in that the, the the cycle is fairly quick, the hype cycle. And these companies aren't able to maintain hype for long enough to survive on just that. So right. even the truly massive publishers like the monopolies they're kind of forced to make things that people will at least spend time playing even if they don't actually enjoy it um, sure so i mean that's the, that's the logic now. yeah i was thinking yeah, of yeah. like call of duty and the endlessly spinning out loot crates sure. and different uh, and obviously the models. sports games are the best ones because you buy the same game every year yes. because there's been yes, slight so- changes to the rosters Right. Yeah, there's like the cycle. Obviously, Call of Duty and the sports games have a cycle. Every year, something comes out on this kind of cadence. It's always there. They tend to be multiplayer or attached to something in real life. Like you say, the players change. Yeah. Um, so by necessity, they have to happen every year, kind of like clockwork. Um, and for better or worse, a lot of people play them. I'm sure some of them enjoy it. I, I I can't say I've managed to in a lot of these, but maybe I'm a snob. Uh, but like, but like architecture, we're all snobs here. But like architecture, <laughs> at least two two of us, three of us are even architects. But like architecture, these new games they're not really based on something like a new use value or something like a, a new development in productivity. It's based on a subscription rent based model. So. Kind of, yes. So there's like obviously different different models. There's like what's now called premium games, 
as in you buy the game and then you play it in your own time and that's it. Uh, that used to be where the games were. Yeah. Uh, like uh, there's, there's some studios that make money like that. A lot of the indie studios do just this kind of thing. They make a small thing. Right. It's quirky or unique or interesting. And then most of them are never seen again. And some of them become popular because they're cool and people buy them, whatever. And they got lucky with the marketing somehow. Yeah, yeah. Usually, or like most most frequently what happens is it's an already established team from some larger studio mm -hmm. that kind of breaks out and does their own thing. Or even one person that's somewhat famous. Um, and then there's the traditionally like MMOs. For, yeah, go the the famous like what's the, what's the role of the star star power here? Is it that the like the consumers know these star figures? Yes, and like, to some extent. I'm, we're gonna buy the game from this new person. Like uh, probably the most or it's an industry connection. That no, no, it, it's 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 like the the knowledgeable gamers, the hardcore ones will know the individual. Usually, like a design director or something. So like. Probably the most well known is, is Hideo Kojima. Right. Yeah. But he but he is not, he never did the jump into indie. He moved from one massive company to another source of massive Sort of. He he moved towards a bit more uh, sort of creative independence uh, while letting go of some comforts in terms of is easy Metal access. Gear Solid? Is it Metal Gear Solid into uh, that, the Walton that's game? That's trending. Yeah, yeah. Yes. The first train yes, this... game. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about Death Stranding. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I've we, actually played it. We can't, we've been playing it. We can't talk about Death Stranding because it doesn't have any architecture. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you would be wrong there. It's exactly the game oh. we shouldn't talk about. There is actually architecture in it. I thought it was it's... just like rocks in Scotland, the whole game. Sort of. <laughs> there's, there's underground cities that you see okay. that the outsides of. Mm -hmm. um, and there's destroyed cities that people used to live in. Uh, but really, it's mostly about logistics in a sort of slightly abstract way. And really? also about how the US is horrible, but yeah. <laughs> a lot of his games are about that. Right, right. But yeah, the, 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 this does happen. Uh, someone breaking out into some higher or, or lower degree of independence. Obviously, this one is on the short end, but there's like the guy that made Metroid made a thing. Uh, a bunch of these ended up doing something else. Um, but then there's names there's... that establish themselves specifically as indie names. Like, yes, some dude comes out with a game from nowhere that happens to be really cool, yeah, and exactly. he gets lucky with the marketing somehow, and it it gets out, and then everyone like knows the name of this small guy yeah there's a strong author or even a small sense. team yeah yeah uh and yeah, then it's, everyone it's, is looking at what more what games are coming next? out from this indie name yeah the auteur sort of does exist to some extent yeah but it's really a, like a tiny slice of right. what people play and almost nothing in terms of revenue uh it's like that there's like a handful of super meat boy type things right right but they don't really make the kind of money that yeah, of course. Anything else does. Uh, the big thing, obviously, now is free to play, uh, which yeah. is kind of the sort it's of the unlimited revenue 
model. That's the goal, really. Per, you want each player to be able to give you an unlimited amount of money while still right. notionally receiving something for, for it. And they're mostly buying in-game aesthetic mods. Mm, that's the less kind of hated ones. A lot of these games let you buy in-game power and their multiplayer. Okay. So and there's a lot of like time, time gating and stuff, like in mobile phone yeah, yeah. games. Yeah, there's like there's like a, a, a like a it's not even a spectrum. It's like a multi-dimensional grid on which you can put just the free-to-play games and the kinds of things they do and how how exploitative of the customers and how scummy each of these might or might not be. Yeah, in architecture, it's much more straightforward because it's like developer builds flats, sells flats to hedge funds. Hedge funds raise the price of the flat so in such a way that no one can live in it. But it, but because they raise the price of the flat, it increases the value of the portfolio of the stock portfolio. Mm. Therefore, they make money in the stock exchange, um, yeah. and no one is living in the flats. Yeah, fairly simple. But like this, it's easy. This is the <laughs> sense. Understand. This is the sense in which I say games are actually closer to economic reality. Right. Right. Because that doesn't really happen. Nobody really makes games that no one plays. Because uh, other than making them in their spare time and they can't get anyone to play them. But nobody's making money off of games no one plays. Well, it's because it's harder in gaming to have the kind of scarcity that physical land and buildings give you. Right. So you can't really have asset speculation. Especially now that digital distribution. Yeah. Like eliminated distribution costs basically zero. Yeah. What slightly happens is with IP. So yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously the now there's like a couple of companies that own all the IPs. Like Disney owns most of everything. Right. Uh, and this is visible in games too. Like if you make a game about Star Wars, you have the license from Disney and that's it. And EA have the license for this kind of game and, and the story. Uh, and that used to be a bit more common. That the, some of these IPs would be traded around. That there would be some amount of speculation over, oh, do gamers actually give a shit about this old thing or not? Uh, but again, it's kind of forced into, well, if you don't make a game, the hype dies down. It's gone. There's so much shiny stuff all the time. Like the volume of of things being made is high enough that it's not really practical to sustain this kind of continuous hype that the likes of whatever hedge funds and, and Elon Musk or whatever managed to. Hmm. It's, it doesn't really happen to that. It, it obviously does happen, but not to the same kind of degree. So what do you think about the architecture of video games? Huh? So we like, in your, your original question to us was, why do uh, you think, you? what do you think is the social thing that's like, is there any social thing going on about people liking the city planning, city builders genre again? Yeah, I, I find that a bit, like obviously there's hype cycles and sort of fashion in terms of what game is popular when what kind of genre is popular when. Uh, that's normal, expected. But there seems to be, in the past few years, like since 20, since, since City Skylines came out, uh, 
basically. This kind of little genre of not so much architecture, um, but yeah, more like building uh, scale. city, city building. scale. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so much like make a building. It's more like uh, make a city, or yeah. how does how does traveling through a city work, or make the roads in this thing? Uh, right. Train, and that seems to be methods. a kind of, of a trend. Yeah, like train. And then there's like the smaller things. There's always been like roller coaster tycoon or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those kinds Which of copycats. But it, it, I find it interesting, and I, I don't truly understand why exactly, uh, that there's this kind of appetite for city planning in particular and yeah. the logistics of life in sort of more general as a game that like surely that's not supposed to be fun but no the people are care about this my speculation is because where they live is is shit and not improving and getting worse yeah. <laughs> i'd like to see to see that done but i i but maybe, the maybe funny there's thing more is, to it i don't know the funny thing is that most of these games are essentially radically neoliberal utopias like City, uh, uh, the way SimCity works and city skylines and etc. Like the economics of city planning there are essentially what if capitalism actually worked because you have a smart manager? <laughs> sort of. It's actually worse than that. Like they cheat enormously. Uh, they they couldn't. They don't even try to simulate an actual economy or anything close to it. This is the bit that's kind of this is what has always disappointed players. Like the original SimCity didn't even simulate uh, individual p- people or cars sure, moving sure, around. Sure. It was for doing this more statistical, yeah. the statistical model. It would render cars moving around, but they wouldn't actually do yeah. anything. We, like, I think, here we all play the first SimCity, right? Absolutely. I played SimCity. it a little. <laughs> Was it SimCity 2000? No, 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 no. Just SimCity. When he starts having numbers, it's not first. <laughs> well, not necessarily. But yeah, 2000 is not the first. I think Some it was the second. Some say it's the best one. 2000. I played the very first one. Yeah. That was SimCity Classic. Yeah. Well, it is now called that. It's yeah, now yeah, called Classic. Call it, it wasn't called Classic back then. <laughs> no, it was not. I always loved... Uh, city builders. Hmm. I always played a lot of city builders. I played the original Sim City, then I played two thousand, then there was three thousand, and then there was all those games that were also like historical city builders, like Caesar hmm. and uh, Pharaoh, and uh, uh, like you do an ancient Egyptian uh, city, and you need to like build the pyramids as well. And those are more interesting because they are more like the economy is more real there because it's not based on money. Like you need to produce commodities, sure. you need to produce things to give to the like to distribute to the people. Yeah, and blah blah blah. It's the actual underlying economy. There's an underlying economy going on that has a productive side. It's not purely abstracted as like this is a commercial area, this is an industrial area, this is a residential area, and everyone pays taxes. <laughs> yeah, and it just works. Yeah, sort supposedly. of. Or at least it supposedly <laughs> does. I did, again, this is what's always disappointed players looking into it some more. 
that it's they they have all been faking it and they still are now because like there's an expectation of higher graphical fidelity and whatever which yeah sure we have much much better computers but the kinds of simulations of an economy which we could be doing with computers are very difficult to pair up with a game that's actually playable and looks good mm, right there is a one that is doing the rounds an indie one that is ruining the rounds that is communist city builder mm. it's called like workers and resources and there's like <laughs> there is it's it's a, it's one there where there is no money there's no money resource. You need to build a, an asphalt factory to have asphalt so you can build a road. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like it makes sense. It's almost like it makes sense, yes. <laughs> you, you build housing for workers because you need workers to work in the factory to build asphalt, to build, to build cement, to build yeah. the houses. So there's a whole... like It's, it's an economy simulator more than a city builder yeah. in the way people are used to. There's some that get closer to that. So there's some where you have this sort of thing where whatever, you're on an alien planet and you attract people to your planet. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that you can put them in the factories to make the things you need to, to right. make another thing and whatever. I played, uh, so the, the last city builder I played was Surviving Mars, which was that. Yeah, it's basically that, yeah. <clears throat> there's a few it's, others, like it's, that's like a mini genre in itself. In teaching like the history of architecture and teaching the history of the modern movement, it seems like one of these socialist city builders would be a good a good way to kind of like explain what what modernist architecture was about. Yes, exactly. Trying to, trying to understanding that the problems in the city are actually architecture problems, but they're also deeper mm -hmm. than architecture problems. Architectural problems are also economic problems and political problems and yeah. production problems and like the way architecture and the city is embedded in a larger social right. structure, yeah. where yeah. things actually come yeah. from, how they develop, yeah. how things change. Whereas the economics of architecture as are understood or intuited by architecture students and architects in general today, I guess, is the SimCity model, which is architecture serves the purpose of raising land values around it so that it upscales the area and so there's more taxes. Come, yeah, yeah. So pay, people end up paying more taxes in the area, therefore making the economy better. <laughs> so literally yeah. architecture, the, econo the economics of architecture are literally just gentrification. There's no other economics of architecture within the Sin City right. neoliberal model. Well, and, and even I, perhaps less specifically, the economics are usually expansion for the sake of it. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. So this conversation is going pretty long, so we're going to cut this into two parts. Um, we'll stop for today now, and then next week we'll come out with the second part of our conversation. Yes. With Where we will be discussing the architecture of video games. Yeah. So join our Patreon if you haven't already. www.patreon.com slash streetsweeperpod. And we'll see you next week. See ya.